Hello and welcome to episode 1044 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Okay. We're doing an email show. Anything you want to talk about before that? Uh, well, I guess what I should have said was I'm doing better than Sam Dyson, but I don't <laughs> want to skip ahead because that will be part of the stat segment. <laughs> are you doing better than Sam Dyson? I think so. I think we all are. Well, I guess well, there's, there's the other side of it where Sam Dyson is making millions of dollars. So yeah, I don't sure. know to what extent that is of comfort to him <laughs> yeah. at night on, on these evenings. He's uh, He has, I don't know what to call it, like a meltdown face. You know, we we all yeah. remember that he was on the other side of the Jose Batista blast. And mm-hmm. I don't know, he's, uh, he's having a rough start. I don't know yeah. quite how you recover from this. But again, let's, uh, I guess we can hold off on the, I, I brought this up too soon. I blew it. <laughs> okay. I'm reading Rick Ankiel's book right now. So I guess it's all relative. It's <laughs> not Ankiel level, but we are all doing better in our respective occupations, hopefully, than Sam Dyson is right now. Although he has achieved quite a bit in his in the past. So we're going to do emails. But before then, I'm about to say something that you will almost never hear us say on this podcast. Can we talk about the Reds? <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. I was just looking at Rysale Iglesias is not, not allowed a single hard hit. I know that's a very niche fact, but it's something yeah. I noticed about the Reds this morning. Yeah. So follow up to our Michael Lorenzen banter from the other day, because mm-hmm. Michael Lorenzen even more interesting now, or maybe Brian Price more interesting now. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Both. They brought Lorenzen in in the third inning with the bases loaded and the Reds were already up by a few runs. So it wasn't super high leverage, but there was a good chance that it would be the highest leverage opportunity of that game. And Lorenzen, if he's not the closer, he's close. He's a setup man or something. And Brian Price brought him in in the third inning. And he thought it was the biggest situation of the game. He brought him in and then he left him in there for three innings because he only needed 32 pitches to get through those three innings. So this is, I mean, this is Andrew Miller, but even more this is super extreme and fun and interesting and the quotes from lorenzen were pretty incredible as reported by friend of the podcast zach buchanan he said after the game i work like the best i have the stuff like the best why wouldn't i think that what i'm doing is the best (laughs) and he he says it's not to brag but just to explain why he was so good (laughs) 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 when he was called upon and he says I don't try to not give up any runs. I know I'm not going to give up any runs. <laughs> and uh, evidently he told the pitching coach that he wanted to finish the game. He didn't want to come out after three innings. He wanted to stay in there and pitch five plus or whatever it was. And he said, there's no limit. I don't know why I would ever think there would be a limit on what I can do. It doesn't make any sense for me to do that. It handicaps me as someone who's trying to go out and perform with the best. So he sounds like a motivational speaker or some kind of cult-like figure, but he seems to be talking as if he thinks he is the best and the Reds are using him as if he is the best and it's the 70s again or even more extreme. So I don't know exactly how this came about. We knew that the Reds were intending to try to be a bit more experimental this year. There were quotes from Price and quotes from Dick Williams saying that they were just going to try 
try to use all their pitchers interchangeably and they are doing it so far, at least in Lorenzen's case. So this is pretty cool. Yeah, he, when, in that Zach Buchanan article about Lorenzen being a two-way player from March, Lorenzen, Lorenzen had similar quotes where he was talking along the lines of, well, I mean, I know I can hit. Of course I can hit. Of course I can be a two-way player. Why wouldn't I be a two-way player? <laughs> and it's just like, and so the transitions would be like, Brian Price doesn't necessarily share Lorenzen's opinion of himself, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I love that Lorenzen gets to share a clubhouse with Joey Votto, who's another yeah. player who talks a little like this, although now granted Votto has earned the right to talk uh-huh. like that and be so self-confident. But I mean, from everything I can tell about Lorenzen, at least as a relief pitcher, he's basically right. I mean, he's <laughs> he's not like Dellen Batances, but who is, I guess, mm-hmm. is one of those multi... Well, I guess Andrew Miller would have been the better comparison, but... <laughs> I'm tired of comparing pitchers to Andrew Miller. You know what? That's <laughs> yeah. that's an off-season thing to do. So, yeah, Lorenzen. So now we, uh, you can love him for his pitching. You can mm-hmm. love him for his offensive utility. You can love him for his pitching versatility, I guess, that he can go multiple innings. And now you can love him for his personality. So that's four. That's four legitimate reasons to love the hard-throwing and hard-hitting Michael Lorenzen. Yeah, this is why we haven't talked about the Reds that much on this podcast because they haven't had anyone doing this, and now they do, and as long as they do, we will talk about them. We are fair. uh, Before you advance away from the Reds point, I would like to say that last year, as many of the listeners might know, at least according to the Fangraphs version of War, the Reds pitching staff was the first pitching staff ever to finish with a war below zero, which is bad. That's a very bad pitching staff. This year, the Reds are second in baseball in ERA. The peripherals are also good. Of course, it's early. They've struck out a lot of hitters. They've had, you know, a little bit of a walk problem. But considering where the Reds have been and considering their opening day starter was Scott Feldman, <laughs> Reds are doing great. The only team yeah. with a better ERA than the Reds, the Minnesota Twins. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm going to advance away from that Reds topic into another, Joey Votto, who is the subject of every article over the last couple of days. Sam mm-hmm. wrote about him and Travis wrote about him and Zach Buchanan wrote about him and talked to him. And everyone's curious about what Joey Votto is doing because he has been a completely different hitter this year so far. Instead of the ultra-selective Votto that we know and love, he is now among the most frequent swingers in baseball. He has a, a top 20 overall swing rate, and he is a leading Major League Baseball in zone swing rate. So he has swung at 86% of the pitches that he has seen in the strike zone this year, and... Just to compare last year, for example, that was 63%, and he's usually around 60%. And this is really dramatic. It's, I mean, you don't usually see hitters and change in zone rate all that much or zone swing rate or whatever in a single season. Often there will be some guy who decides to be more aggressive or less aggressive early in the year, but this is a a really big jump. And because it's Vado and because we know that he thinks deeply about everything he's doing, we wonder what the point is. And Zach couldn't get him to divulge exactly what he's doing, but it's clearly intentional. He is swinging more for a reason. And I am curious about why you think that is. We did get a a question to tie this to the listener email episode. We got a question from Tom who says, 
that he saw an article about Vado and in his head thought he's got them right where he wants them. How great would it be if he was doing this just to get pitchers to adjust and pitch him out of the zone more, getting him into better counts early and getting more of those juicy walks? And then he says, obviously, this can't be the case, although I wish it were. But if there's anyone that would think this up, pull it off, it would be Vado. And uh, it could very well be the case. Yeah. So I think the the idea of doing this to make pitchers adjust and then get more walks. I don't know the extent to which I buy that because Joey Votto's never had trouble drawing walks. But right. of course, hitting and pitching is all sort of a back and forth where if you're really aggressive, then the other the pitchers will pitch around you. And then if they're pitching around you, then you swing less, which means then they'll be aggressive again. And it's so it's all cyclical. And if you look at any hitter's performance over small samples is sort of a rolling graph over the course of their careers. You'll see that unless they are Mike Trout or I guess Ryan Goins, it's all up and down. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's usually not just all up or all down. With Votto in particular, he is someone who is known to sort of toy around. I think I remember like in the first half last year, he uh, maybe it was the year before, he would just start trying to pull everything just to see if he could. <laughs> uh, that might be an over exaggeration, but he just sort of thought, eh, I'm going to do this. I'm Joey Votto. Why not? And then yeah. <laughs> he just tried it for a little bit and he decided, no, I don't really like it. So then he changed. It's worth noting that so far this year, Joey Votto, at least based on the very small sample slash line, has not been good. He's right. been aggressive, but he hasn't walked. He's still struck out a decent amount for Joey Votto. Mm-hmm. I finally got this graph to load. Okay, this took a while, but I was looking at a. Uh, a fan graphs graph, which is a feature that still exists. It's actually even better than it's ever been, for those of you who don't know. So I'm looking at Joey Votto's entire career as a visual, a, an eight-game rolling average for his entire career covering basically a decade, looking at swing rate. I wanted to know mm-hmm. if Votto had ever surpassed. So uh, his swing rate for the eight games so far this year, 56%. So let's look at this. What are Joey Votto's highest ever swing rates? This is very uninteresting for anybody listening to me look at a graph. However, I see from the middle of last September, he had a stretch of 56%. So that's something. But that's the highest swing rate over eight games of his 2016. Nothing closer than 51% there. 2015, he topped out at 51%. 2014, he was hurt all the time, but he still didn't top 56%. 2013... He never topped 54%. 2012, never topped 50%. 2011, he did get up to 55%, but that's still short. So we go back to 2010, where over an eight-game stretch in, I guess, the end of May and early June, he had a swing rate of 58%. So clearly, Uh Joey Votto has been swinging far more than usual. I think because of the nature of it being eight games, and who knows what's going on in Votto's head, uh, when you look at a plot like this, you can see that he has these swing rate spikes. So it's too early to say that Joey Votto has clearly made some sort of permanent shift, but I don't think anybody expects that Joey Votto has made a permanent shift. There's no reason for him to do that. He's mm-hmm. the second best hitter in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say. He's coming off a, a second half last year when he was by far the best hitter in baseball. He was worth four wins. He had a 201 Weighted runs created plus, which was way higher than Miguel Cabrera in second at 179. So he was way better than everyone else. I think he was slightly more aggressive down the stretch last year, but not dramatically, not so much that you'd write an article about it. And whatever he was doing was working incredibly well. So it wasn't like he 
ended last season on a slump or something and decided he had to do something different. So I don't know what the impetus was. Although you'd think that like if you are Joey Votto and you are known for being ultra selective and not swinging at pitches outside the strike zone or even in the strike zone, you could kind of use that to your advantage at times maybe and ambush pitchers like if you just wanted to because they know you're not going to swing they've seen the scouting report and then if you just decide to swing all of a sudden like that's something that maybe if he saved it for the playoffs or something if the reds ever made the playoffs while he was on them then that might be a a valuable thing just to become like frequent swinging vado in october or something when everyone's throwing him strikes i don't know if people actually throw him strikes though because he has really good power and people are scared of him anyway so it's not like they're constantly throwing him strikes like he's i don't know a bad hitter who sees a lot of strikes (laughs) (laughs) what i uh what i like about Votto is he's got this reputation of being sort of way too patient over his career he's actually swung at more first pitches than the average he swung at about a third of all first pitches ever seen the league average is closer to a quarter and also last year joey Votto swung at 17 pitches on a a 3-0 count the year before he swung at 12 without any context I guess people don't really realize that that's a lot but hitters (laughs) generally don't swing so I think the league average swing rate in 3-0 counts is about like 8% and Joey Votto over his career is at 17% over the last few years it's been even higher than that because for example in 2012 he swung at just 3 out of 40 so I don't want to mine too deep into Joey Votto's patience record, but he has gotten more sort of selectively aggressive, sort of ambushy, I guess, mm-hmm. in the last few years. And you do you do wish that one day he'd be able to use that in a game that matters. Mm-hmm. All right. So we will move on from the Reds, regretfully, and we will answer some emails. This is a question from Charlie. Pretty sure this has been answered at some point in the podcast past, but a long time ago, and I don't know when. He says, because it is the beginning of the season, most TV broadcasts show the previous year's batting stats and slash lines when a player comes up to bat. So my question is simple. How long into the season should they wait to make the switch to this year's stats? When does this year's slash line better represent the player's true talent compared to last year's? Yeah. Okay. Those are two very different questions. Yeah. So the the second to answer the second question first, when does this year's stat line become more representative? Uh, I'm not Russell Carlton, but I would think that the answer is not for a very long time. Yeah. Probably not at least until the All Star break, and even yeah. there, it still might not be enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, of course, you have to consider the viewer and the average viewer and what the viewer is actually looking for out of those numbers. And I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, I don't think the average viewer is looking at those numbers and thinking, this is going to inform my opinion of this at bad. I don't know how much the average viewer actually thinks about that. Or if you're watching, I guess, let's say a Reds game and Scott Shebler, that's a bad example. Nobody knows Scott Shebler. <laughs> Adam Duvall comes up to the plate. The average person watching a Reds game probably already has some opinion of Adam Duvall that's sort of indirectly at least informed by what he's done. So maybe having the numbers on the broadcast isn't serving that great of a purpose. So I don't think you're looking for representation of his true talent, because if you are, you would just show rolling projections, projections, (laughs) which (laughs) I think would drive people insane, even though I would love it. Uh Uh, So I think for my taste, uh, I I think you have to go at least a week before you flip into the current season stats. If I could have an actual cutoff I would say like 50 plate appearances for a hitter or maybe 10 innings for a pitcher but I know that that that's still probably too long because people would by now like if you tune into a a Reds game and you see Scott Feldman on the mound and 
they're still showing 2016 statistics. That's weird because he started, I think, two games or maybe 12 games. I don't know how many games the Reds played. Maybe he started all of them. Him and Bronson <laughs> Arroyo. What a team. So <laughs> I would have a cutoff that is, or a threshold, I guess, that's higher than where it presumably is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know what purpose those numbers actually serve, even though a broadcast would feel naked without them. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice to see both for a while, but I know that that is difficult. There's a bunch of stuff on the screen already, but I'd be interested in seeing last season's stats for a month or so. Not that I need them necessarily, because I generally know who's good and who isn't, and also I could just look up the stats very easily, but... I think for convenience sake, I would probably say a month, but they don't actually do that. So you know what they could do? They could they could show the last calendar year stats. Yeah. To sort mm-hmm. of advance. I mean, still that might drive people crazy because you think the off season six months and and right. that is sort of like a clean break. But I could I could get behind that. Yeah, I'd like that too. All right, Lindell sent a picture, which you can't see, although I'll post it in the (laughs) Facebook group, but he says, the White Sox just showed this on the scoreboard. This is either a terrible attempt at a joke or a terrible fun fact. I feel bad about it either way. And it's one of those stats that flashes when a player comes to the plate, and it is a picture of Matt Davidson, and it says, owns the highest average 750 of any player in White Sox history with at least four (laughs) at-bats. I really like this. I don't know what the motivation here was, whether it was just desperation to have a stat or what, but if this was poking fun at the absurdity of stats on the scoreboard at baseball games, I think this is great. I love this. His average is down to 455 now, but (laughs) presumably that's that's still pretty high. Maybe that's the highest for anyone with 11 at-bats as a White Sox player. I don't know, but... I like this. This is so many of the scoreboard stats are intended to be fun facts and they're not at all. They're just some crazy meaningless split and we mock them. And if this is taking that to its extreme and setting a at bat minimum at four, then I like that a lot because I've had the experience of having to prepare game notes when I used to work at Bloomberg Sports. We would partner with broadcasters and we'd have to send them notes on every player for every game and it was excruciating because you'd have to do so many of them and you'd have to change them every day in a series so you'd have to do multiple notes for the same players even though nothing had changed since your first note and we were constantly scrambling to come up with fun facts or even just mildly interesting facts and so I sympathize with scoreboard stat people across the country and this is a fun way of dealing with that. Yeah, uh, I love it if it is ironic. Uh, if it is not, then whatever. Who cares? <laughs> I can tell you that Matt Davidson no longer has the highest batting average in White Sox history with a minimum of anything. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, with a minimum of four at-bats, the current leader and, I guess, leader for a while will be Stan Goletz, who went three for five in 1941. <laughs> uh-huh. Kudos to Stan Goletz. If the minimum is 25 at-bats, then the leader is Terry Forster at 480. He beats out Matt Davidson at 455. If the minimum is 37 at-bats, we have Clint Courtney at 378. If the minimum is 45 at-bats, we have presumably not the Bruce Campbell, but a Bruce Campbell <laughs> at 356. And if the minimum is 2,439 at-bats, then the leader is Shoeless Joe Jackson at 340. So Matt Davidson has some work to do if he wants to get to Shoeless Joe Jackson, but he is still on pace to top 
Bruce Campbell. So <laughs> he's got that going for him. Yep. And he's not banned from baseball. So that's a plus also. All right. Question from Joe. I am a newish listener via Ben's book and Kaz Yamazaki's Twitter feed and initially wanted to ask about which player has suffered most in career terms from rainy ballparks. However, <laughs> I've come to realize this is far too boring for the podcast. So here's my ridiculous hypothetical. You are chaotic evil and have the ability to make it rain on one player, the diameter of the field just in case, just enough to allow the game to carry on every time he plays. Which position would you choose, and if possible, which player? Which would this affect most? Alternatively, if this is more appealing, the baseball gods take offense at Mike Trout's going against nominative determinism, distinct lack of water, and cause it to rain again, not enough to cancel the game every time he plays. How much closer to a mortal does this make him? I ask these questions because I got rained on rather a lot at a game the other day. The players seemed pretty miserable, but played okay. Okay, well, let's break this down. Who... uh... (laughs) Who's researched the effective rain? Because I know, like RetroSheet, yeah, will keep I just, track of when it rains. Yeah, I just googled and I found a bunch of like, what's the effect of cold weather on baseball mm-hmm. players articles, but didn't immediately see something on precipitation. So, mm-hmm. not sure we can answer this one via established research unless you're seeing something I wasn't. Okay, well, let's see. First of all, Mike Trout. Let's let's break this down. Go Trout first, of course. So let's say, so the idea is that it's not just like an angry cloud over Trout, but it's raining for all of Trout's games. I guess that's, the, that's right. The I, I kind of like the angry cloud over the one player, if we can do that. Yeah, okay, but, let's do the angry cloud. So yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't know how, uh, how a game proceeds, much less 162 <laughs> of them where you have a... Uh, very localized phenomenon but trout being what he is i guess maybe you'd figure out that he has the money and in his downtime maybe he created his own meteorology yeah or, trout I would guess, love this climatology he'd be fascinated by yeah, how this twist is answer trout's yeah. better he's, <laughs> he's more in his comfort zone he probably doesn't yeah. like playing in anaheim because no. it's too damn warm yeah so yeah mike trout even better i'll say with uh <laughs> with a rain cloud now it would probably affect I don't know how much it would affect his range in the outfield because if the cloud is just above him, then all the ground around him is still dry and easy to run on. Mm -hmm. And even when he takes a step and the cloud moves with him, it still takes a certain amount of time for the ground to get saturated with the rain. So where he stands would get saturated, presuming it's raining all the time. But mm-hmm. it would dissipate from there. So it'd he'd be affect him on a, defense, probably, because he, he'd be standing in a puddle that would yeah. probably be bad for getting good jumps on balls. Yeah. Yeah. And it would slow him down on the bases, of course, because it mm-hmm. would, if he's taking a lead off first base, then all of a sudden he's in mud and that's terrible. His clothes mm-hmm. would be dirty, but Trout would eat it up. He'd be smiling the whole time. He'd be very trouty about it. So he'd be worse in the field. He'd be slower on the bases. He would probably hit. Roughly the same. I mean, the rain clearly can't be that bad if the rain if the game is proceeding, right? Because uh, you know the, that would be the umpire's view if he's looking out to the pitcher and there's a cloud over Mike Trout. Then the umpire would think, well, this rain is too hard, or it's not too hard. Mm-hmm. And if it's just sprinkling, I think Trout would be okay. Uh, as for who this would affect the most, I think the answer obviously has to be some sort of pitcher. But I don't know. Yeah. I don't know which pitcher. So. I don't know what pitches are more difficult to control with a wet ball, but I'm thinking maybe I'm too anchored on this idea, but I'm thinking now about pitchers who have really long hair that might make it more annoying Uh and have the hair sort of like flopping around and slapping you in the face. So then you get sort of like a John Gray or Noah Syndergaard or Jacob deGrom situation. The Mets would be in trouble, I guess, because you'd Mm -hmm. have all this wet, disgusting hair flying everywhere. Uh, I feel like that would be kind of a bummer. Mm -hmm. Would it be worse for someone with 
pinpoint command or would it be worse for someone who already has kind of Fernando Rodney-ish command and this might mm. push them over the edge? Yeah, I we got a question once about whether rain would actually help a pitcher because the questioner was asking if it would be like a spitball, like you could doctor the ball with the moisture falling from the sky. And we asked David Ardsma that question at a live episode we did at Sabre Seminar last year, and he said, no, definitely not. It's not <laughs> not the same as spit or any other substance. It just makes it slippery and harder to get a grip. So it would definitely make you worse and... I don't know. It seems like maybe someone who's just firing fastballs would still be okay, but I'm not totally sure about that. Like, it seems like it would make it harder to impart spin to the pitch and do subtle finger pressure and that kind of thing as opposed to pure speed, but I don't know exactly. Yeah, I, I guess fastballs would probably be okay. I think the idea, if, I might be wrong, but I think the idea of the spitball is that you, you spit, but that's not where you grip the ball. I think it's just supposed to sort of make it asymmetrical uh-huh. so i think you spit on the side of the ball and then you throw it and then there's well i'm not a physicist but i've read about this once but i think that the idea is if you have spit on one side of the ball as it rotates then it will break in that direction or the other direction i don't know which i don't remember which one but you don't i don't think there's an advantage of actually spitting on the ball and then putting your fingers on the spit because that doesn't help the pitcher at all mm-hmm. i think it's yeah. you're just supposed to try to knock it off the usual flight path so if it's raining on the ball then there's water on every side. It's still, to some extent, asymmetrical, I guess. But yeah, I, I can see how that would be a problem. Ardsmo would be fine because he threw like 100% fastballs. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know how this affects hitters really either. I don't know whether the rain drops are distracting. If the pitch is coming from clear skies to the rain cloud above trout, is that distracting, like going from sunlight to shadow? Shadows! <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what else it does. Does it hurt your grip on the bat? Probably not that much. You've got batting gloves. You've got pine tar, whatever you want. So I would think it would affect a hitter less, but you never know. He might develop some sort of seasonal affective disorder just from being in rain at all times. Although, again, it might work in the opposite way for him specifically. So... I think he would still be excellent. He'd be uh, worse, but I think he'd still be an all-star level player. And uh, and I guess Lance McCullers and Rich Hill could conceivably suffer the most if it was raining yeah. out because they throw so few fastballs. Right. Okay, question from Nick. Imagine that for some reason MLB has several awful drafts in a row, drafts consisting of prospects that don't even have double-A or triple-A potential. How many years of these drafts would it take for the major leagues to be noticeably different? What would the league look like at that point? What would likely stay the same? So this reminded me of a, I don't know how many of you know John Boys, but John mm-hmm. Boys, or I guess John Bois, probably John Boys, <laughs> yes. wrote an article some years ago for SB Nation where he was simulating an NBA video game and for the draft class, he created the worst players possible because uh, he was trying to basically ruin the NBA and, uh, and see how long it would take. So after a short number of years, although still a decent number of years, but after, uh, I don't remember exactly, but I don't know, call it five or seven years, the play of the games be, uh, became markedly worse and the scores started to get embarrassing and noticeably horrible. So in baseball, I think it would take a little longer than that. And especially if you're talking about a horrible draft class, one or two or even three draft classes, I don't think would make a huge effect on the game. You don't really notice say for like 2015 or 20 yeah 2015 you don't really notice the change made by the rookie class that much 
I think, though, that teams would become acutely aware of how little they're getting from the draft. And so the advantage for teams then would be that they would look for alternative means. They would go look for international players to try to bring in. They would scout the indie leagues more often Mm -hmm. uh, and more vociferously. So uh, you'd still have a, a drain on talent, but I think it would take, I don't know, like maybe even eight to 10 years before you're like, whoa, the league has gotten mm-hmm. worse. But I don't even know where, where would you notice it in the numbers if all of the players got 10% worse? Where would it show up? Or would you notice it just from watching? I don't actually know the answer. Yeah, I don't know. You'd, you'd get steroid era like aging curves for a while. All the old players would continue to be better than you'd expect. And I mean, I guess you'd you'd just notice that there were no rookies anymore because no mm-hmm. one would be getting called up at all. You'd have the same players year after year. You'd have no rookie of the year. I don't know who your rookie of the year would be. <laughs> it would just I, you, you wouldn't have any rookies because none of them is major league ready. So that would be noticeable like in a single season, right? I mean, when we had that crazy crop of young players – what, two years ago, everyone noticed immediately that prospects were getting called up very early and they were doing really well and the league as a whole seemed to be slanted more toward young players. So that was something we picked up on very early and Mm -hmm. presumably we would pick up on this very early. And I don't know if, I mean, I guess it would be, it'd be good in that players would last longer and age less dramatically and the guys that we know would remain productive and so in a sense it might not be the worst thing from a marketing perspective there but on the other hand you like to promote your young players and get some new blood in the game and that's been really beneficial to baseball lately so yeah eventually it would get scary i'd say probably like a couple years into this you'd start getting questions about the future of baseball and what it means basically the question that we are currently answering but in real life and uh <laughs> you'd get a whole lot of uh explorations of i mean this couldn't really happen without i don't know some kind of dramatic change to amateur baseball like why are there no good baseball players anymore is it because no one's playing amateur baseball anymore was it a rash of injuries? Was it some kind of titanic screw-up of player development? I don't know. But this would be probably the biggest story in baseball pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you you would see... Uh, right now, you see more plate appearances and, and more war coming from the, the youngest players in baseball. So, yeah, you would you would look at the splits and you'd notice, so old players are, are doing the best now all of a sudden. I don't think that you would have no good rookies because, again, we're just talking about the draft here, right? So you could... Still yeah. sign people internationally, and, and teams would do that even more than they already do. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of the talent already comes from. You would have more players coming over from Japan, uh, South Korea, even Cuba. So you would still have, I think, fractions of strong rookie classes, but you they just wouldn't be very deep. So you'd still mm-hmm. have, I don't know, I haven't pulled up, I don't know how many international signings are on the average top 100 prospect list, but... You know, it's a pretty high number, I would assume. I think that's nearly the entire Padres farm system right now. <laughs> uh, the Rangers have gone through phases like that as well. So uh, it would really put a premium on teams that do well internationally. But, oh, it, yep. would, it would be a funny story to try to examine <laughs> why does everybody from America suck at baseball all of a sudden. Yeah, it'd probably be bad for parity because of the way that baseball's pay structure works. You'd have... 
the rich teams able to afford the older players who make more money, free agents would be a good investment at this point because <laughs> you can't get any good pre-arbitration players. So that would probably be bad for the game in the long run. So it'd be a dramatic difference, I think. Yeah. All right. Stat segment. Let's do it. Back to Sam Dyson. <laughs> so for anyone who has not been paying too close attention to uh, to the Texas Rangers, they have been bad. But realistically, what's been bad is Sam Dyson. Their closer, although at this publishing, maybe not their closer anymore. <laughs> Fun fact, I just learned Sam Dyson drafted three times. Okay, mm. who cares? So Sam Dyson, he uh, the Rangers have played seven games. They've won two of them. They've nearly won, I don't know, let's call it five of them. <laughs> and the difference between those is large and it's all Sam Dyson's fault. So in his first game, he pitched two-thirds of an inning, allowed four hits, three runs. That's bad. The Rangers lost to the Indians. In his, uh, in his second game, the Rangers' third game, he pitched one-third of an inning, allowed three hits, two walks, five runs. Rangers lost to the Indians. Sam Dyson's third game, the Rangers' sixth game, he pitched a harmless inning in a blowout, and he allowed no runs. Kudos on his timing. Cut his ERA in half from 72 to 36. Sam Dyson pitched again on April 11th, which was yesterday. The good news is he lowered his season ERA from 36 to 33. The bad news is you can still allow three runs in an inning and do that. So he allowed... Three runs in the ninth inning to allow the Angels to tie the Rangers and the Angels eventually won on a walk-off bunt, which is <laughs> a fun thing to observe. Yep. So Sam Dyson, four games pitched in the Rangers for seven games. He's thrown three innings. He's allowed 11 hits and 11 runs, all of them earned. <sighs> so at this point, if you are familiar with the win probability added, which you I guess probably are the current WPA leaderboard or reverse leaderboard, I guess, for pitchers. Sam Dyson, out of 380 pitchers, he is, of course, in last place with a WPA of negative 1.8, which is terrible. Uh, that means that he's effectively already cost the Rangers 1.8 wins, which is the difference between them and being above 500. Mm -hmm. uh, second place, Chase DeYoung, who is a pitcher who who cares. He is at negative 0.8, so there's a difference already of a full win between yeah. Sam Dyson and Chase DeYoung, who was only on the Mariners roster because the pitcher who was supposed to be on the Mariners roster got his wife pregnant nine <laughs> months ago. He went on paternity leave. Chase DeYoung comes in to relieve, to try to lock down a save in the bottom of the 13th or 14th inning or whatever. This isn't about Chase DeYoung. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Sam Dyson, last place. Chase DeYoung, second to last. Brett Cecil and Mark Melanson come after Chase DeYoung, so at least Dyson has some company, although DeYoung plus Cecil plus Melanson still <laughs> is barely worse than Sam Dyson. So I was curious, it's not real easy to search for like the worst beginnings to seasons in the team's first however many games. Mm -hmm. I tried to use the play index as best I could. Uh, again, we're not sponsored by Baseball Reference at present, but let's just say that we are. <laughs> Fangraphs does have a stat... It adopted a few years ago. It's called shutdowns and meltdowns. Mm -hmm. And that's based on win probability added as well. And a meltdown is classified as any game in which a pitcher, a relief pitcher, I guess, makes a team's chances of winning worse by at least 6%, I think is the cutoff. Mm -hmm. So, so far this year, for example, Sam Dyson has been tagged with three so-called meltdowns. I was curious who has had the most meltdowns in baseball history in the team's first seven games which is I know, such a silly cutoff but in any case Sam Dyson he has three interestingly Pedro Strop this year also has three although his meltdowns have been 
let's say less dramatic yeah. than uh, than Dyson's have been. So Jan, John Marinez, I should know how to pronounce this, but maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. He's a brewer. He also has three meltdowns. In any case, there have been five cases in baseball history for at least as long as we have WPA, where a pitcher has had four meltdowns in the team's first seven games. We've got Kent Tocolvi in... 1979 we've got dave smith in 1983 ray narleski 1959 bob miller in 1969 and wayne granger which is a wonderful name to say wayne granger <laughs> oh i love it yeah and he wasn't even that bad in a in 4.2 innings uh in his four meltdowns he had a 3.86 era so hey whatever for wayne granger but still i went through all these games all these pitches to figure out who's actually had the lowest combined wpa in a team's first seven games. This took some manual labor because I couldn't find a good way to search it. And so uh, I did end up with Sam Dyson being the worst. He has the worst WPA through a team's first seven games, at least on record, at negative 1.8. We've got 1999 Greg Olson in second to last place, I guess, at negative 1.58. So not even all that close. He's followed by Dan Maselli in 1997. And also Dave, I'm just going to say Justy, uh-huh. 1974, <laughs> negative 1.47. And then Scott Doman, 2005, negative 1.33. What is sort of fun, maybe not so fun for the Rangers fans is that last year's season opening closer, Sean Tollison, shows up near the top or bottom of this list as well. Uh, we talked, I think, on it was a very recent podcast about how the Rangers bullpen was terrible at the start of last year and it kind of ruined their season-long numbers but in mm-hmm. the second half their bullpen was quite good yeah and sam dyson was one of the reasons for that because he took over and became a fairly effective closer but he has now had kind of a similar start but even worse uh compared to last year's sean tollison so sam dyson the worst wpa in a team's first seven games in recorded baseball history kudos to dyson he has left his mark on the Rangers record and on baseball records. I don't know if he's going to continue to close. His stuff seems like it's mostly still there. These things are always tricky. I was watching highlights from yesterday's meltdown and it included an RBI double by Mike Trout hit into the right field corner on a sinker that it looked like Dyson located perfectly low and away. I don't know what you're supposed to do in that situation because you're Mm -hmm. facing the best hitter in the world who didn't even have a storm cloud overhead. (laughs) But nevertheless, Sam Dyson has been awful. The results have been awful. He's only got two strikeouts to go with three walks. Everything looks bad, but he's still throwing hard. Baseball's weird. He's already allowed more than half as many runs as he allowed all of last season. All right. Rangers regressing hard. Okay. (laughs) Let's take a question from Dan who says, I put up a poll in the Facebook group about the wave. Not sure if you voted or saw it, but I'm curious if either both of you have an official position on the wave. And then he sends the results, which are overwhelmingly in favor of the wave is dumb and bad. And I know that Noah Syndergaard was tweeting something derogatory about the wave recently. So there seems to be a lot of anti-wave sentiment going around right now. Do you have a position on the wave? I feel like I'm not supposed to express it because I know the opinion I'm supposed to have and uh-huh. the magnitude of the opinion I'm <laughs> supposed to have. My take, yeah, it's uh, it's <laughs> fine. I think so. Here, the issue I think is there's been a long push against the wave in internet circles, right? I mean, this yeah. there's dates back 10, 15 years. There's this guy Connor Glassy, who I think his Twitter handle 
or online avatar has stopped the wave and he <laughs> works in baseball now yeah. he used to be like a prospect guy a scout anyway. for the indians i think and uh yeah, effectively wild listener yeah true hi connor <laughs> so uh in the internet baseball circles there is a strong opinion against the wave and that makes sense because these are circles comprised of very dedicated uh focused baseball fans and so they are at a game and they want to pay attention to the baseball game. They are already sufficiently entertained. But this seems like it's sort of a little bit of, I guess, I don't know how to put it, but like super fan snobbery where Mm -hmm. it's a push against the casual fan who makes up the majority of all teams' attendance and viewership, Mm -hmm. which I get because you, you think that if you are the more dedicated fan that you've earned the right to have things going your way. But... The, the reality is that if you go to a baseball game and there are 30,000 people there, there are maybe, I don't know, 10, 20% of them are really, really interested in the game. But just think of all the times Sam Miller has posted screenshots of home plate and people aren't even paying attention to what's going on on the field two rows in front of them. Mm-hmm. Most people are there because they're just like, hey, I'm at a baseball game with friends or family and I have this beer or these nachos and I have my phone. I'm going to take a selfie, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and baseball does not engage the fans often or very effectively there are of course exciting moments but they are sort of few and far between and if you're not interested in watching the drip by drip sort of mounting hopefully mounting drama in a game sometimes <laughs> yeah unmounting drama then you can kind of want something to to keep you feeling like you're part of something and that you're actually you've paid for an in-person experience so i kind of get it I think it's silly, but just from a human psychology perspective, I think it's also neat when you can have some like 15-year-old in the upper deck actually compel 20,000 people to do what they want, which Mm -hmm. is kind of neat. Yeah. So I wouldn't miss it if it was gone, but I totally get why it's a thing. And I have never been at a game and thought, my experience would be a lot better if this wave didn't circle three times. <laughs> yeah, if you could get like the average leverage index of wave situations, I'm sure it would be extremely low. I could see how it'd be frustrating if there is a moment when there's a lot of suspense and the game is hanging in the balance and people are doing the wave while you're trying to pay attention to the actual game. I don't know how often that happens, really. It tends to be blowouts and situations where people are bored when this starts. I don't mind other people doing the wave. I don't want to participate in the wave. I'm not a participator in public generally. I don't know. There's there's a <laughs> there's a, a episode of the show Difficult People on Hulu, which I like a lot, where Billy Eichner is dating this guy and he thinks he's great and he's perfect, but then he discovers that he's a participator, like he will he'll want to do like interactive theater and like uh i don't know shout stuff out at comedy shows or like when people ask for a volunteer to come to the stage he'll be the one who raises his hand and i am the opposite of that as billy eichner was in that episode i don't want to be brought up to the stage i don't want to do anything and so that's sort of how i feel about the wave at a baseball game i don't really want to be compelled to do it. I don't care if other people do it. I even enjoy it in a way because visually it's arresting. It's interesting to see an entire ballpark full of people do something in unison. It's kind of cool looking. So 
I don't mind that, but if I'm like in a group of people who are pressuring me to join the wave, <laughs> then I don't I don't like it. I'm fine with everyone else doing it, but I don't really want to go along with it. I don't really like I don't boo at baseball games either. <laughs> I don't I don't cheer at baseball games. I just sort of sit there and watch the baseball and that's kind of all I want to do. So anything that makes me want to have to take part in a group activity I'm generally against. So don't like the wave as a participant. Don't mind it if other people are doing it and I'm not being pressured to join. Yeah, there's a there's a woo that goes with the wave that, <laughs> yeah. that I don't love, but I guess it, it might be kind of weird if it was silent, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, maybe that would be trippy in its own way, but if yeah. you just see people standing in a very quiet sort of like, did I go deaf kind of wave? But right. yeah, I, I don't I don't like to participate in the wave either, but I don't think I've ever seen like a, a wave in the playoffs, at least when the game has been within like five runs. Yeah. It doesn't exist. Right. All right, couple framing-related questions. Maybe I've answered this at some point, but we'll answer it again. This is from Marcus, who says, Let's say baseball's commissioner one day pulls the trigger and decides that all balls and strikes will be decided by real-time computers. How would this change the role of the catcher? If a computer could automatically call the balls and strikes, then pitch framing would not matter and no longer need to exist. You're answering your own question, Marcus. Would this (laughs) cause the catcher to become a glorified DH? So if this happens, and odds are it probably will at some point, then yes, the catcher has to be capable of catching the ball so that it doesn't go to the backstop every time and let the runners advance. But other than that, it shouldn't really matter if he's Ryan Domit or Jose Molina as far as receiving the pitch. It won't affect the call either way. There's still a lot that a catcher does Aside from that, so I wouldn't say glorified DH. That seems extreme. Like he still has to be able to block balls and throw balls to second base and call the game. So there are pretty important things that the catcher has to do. This is maybe the most important thing that a catcher does. He suddenly will not have to do. So you'd think that there would be a lot less variation between catchers in defensive ability although that is already decreasing as you have chronicled as teams get better at framing across the board so it does change things and that's one reason why I've kind of decided that I don't care if there are computer called balls and strikes or not because I like this element of the game but is that it did I cover all the ramifications are there others well, I'm curious. I don't know the exact answer, but if you take framing off the table so that it, it stops mattering how a catcher actually catches the pitch, you're, of course, right, you're, there's still game-calling effects and, and like managing a pitching staff that you have to take into consideration. And this is why even bad framing catchers have been hailed as really good defensive catchers. I, I remember, well, I don't need to go into Rob Johnson. He sucks. It's over. It's <laughs> fine. But I wonder if you take the way that you catch uh, the ball off the table is there a way that catchers could catch that would make them that would effectively reduce their pop times? I don't know the answer mm. to that, but would it make base stealing that much more difficult if a catcher could sort of adjust his pose yeah. or change the way he catches? Because of course, already a catcher doesn't try to like frame pitches when a runner takes off. The, right. the priority is getting rid of the ball. But if there's like a stance that a catcher could get into first, then it would be interesting. I don't know how much you could shave off, but I would assume that we would have a a slight reduction in stolen base attempts or stolen stolen base success rate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a a good point. You'd still have to be in good enough position to block a ball if it it comes to that. But yeah, I bet you could kind of 
cut corners there. So that's a, that's a good point. All right. And another framing-related question. This is from Sean. On a recent episode of Extended Discourse about things that sometimes relate to baseball, i.e. Fangraphs Audio, Carson and <laughs> Eric Longenhagen kind of talked about the difference between a pitcher placing a pitch and a pitcher throwing a strike generally. That is, the catcher sets up outside and it's a strike outside, or the catcher sets up in the middle and it's a strike on the outside. My question is this. Say you had two catchers. One was an average framer. One was a good framer. The good framer can only position himself directly in the middle of home plate, whereas the average framer can position himself wherever he and the pitcher want. Which catcher is more effective at framing? While the latter will have the ability to move around in the zone and thus provide some reference for the pitcher, the former will have the ability to take more pitches that are off the plate and frame them so they're just on the plate. So he's saying that the the good framer in this scenario just has to squat in the middle of the plate. He can't move around. And so if a pitch is on the corners, he's going to have to reach for it, which generally seems like something that affects your framing negatively or your ability to get called strikes. Whereas the other guy is not as good at framing innately, but he can set up where he wants so he can be on the corner and not have to reach for a pitch that's out there. Yeah, uh, I will take the average framer in this circumstance. You probably would as well. Uh, Already, the difference between a good framer and an average framer, like an an average big league framer is still still good. They still know what they're doing. It's not like you or me trying to catch. Uh, in which case, I would definitely take the good framer. Yeah, I would take I would take the average framer here. Uh, when you have a good framer who's setting up in the middle of the plate, of course, you want no pitches in the middle of the plate, and so any good pitch is going to be caught off to the catcher's side or yeah. high or low, which means there's going to be a decent amount of motion that the catcher has to do. Mm-hmm. I guess <laughs> I don't know the the right verb yeah. here. Uh, there would be motion that would take place involving the catcher. Uh, and that would be more likely to compel the umpire to call the pitch ball, and the average framer would still be fine. It's like, I don't know, throwing to James McCann, mm-hmm. who gets to set up on a corner, or throwing to Buster Posey, who is setting up in the middle. And I'll take McCann in this circumstance yeah. exclusively. <laughs> in this circumstance, I would take James McCann behind the plate over Buster Posey. So what if we make it more extreme and say it's Domit who gets to move around and Molina who has to stay in the center of the zone? Let's make it even more extreme and say it's Ryan Domit today, however old he is. Okay. So I think the A problem with this is I wasn't aware of Domit sufficiently at the time to like watch a lot of video to see what he was doing to be mm-hmm. so bad. But okay, I feel like I would still have to take... Now, no, here I would take Molina <laughs> uh-huh. because Domit was bad compared to the average then. Yeah. And if the average has gotten even better, Doma, I mean, you're coughing up dozens and dozens of runs. <laughs> yeah, in that case, I would take Molina, and I would assume that Molina is good enough at catching pitches off to his side. I don't know to what extent having a target in the middle influences whether pitches actually end up in the middle. Mm-hmm. That would be an interesting thing that would be impossible to study. Yeah. But yeah, I would take Molina in that circumstance. And I don't know what the threshold is for Domit or better than that, but oh my God, I just <laughs> anything anything to avoid Domit behind a plate. Yeah. All right. Question from Jacob. How many Matt Kemp's playing center field would it take to have equal defensive value to Kevin Kiermeyer? What about Miguel Cabrera's or Jeff Sullivan's? And uh, I guess we can pretend that Kemp is not currently on the DL with an injury, but he's just his usual ineffective fielding self. Like it's an outfield with just one Kiermeyer? They're regular left fielders and right fielders. So it's just okay. a 
it's just a question about the center fielders specifically. So you you have Kiermaier. I think we're trying to just replicate Kiermaier's fly ball catching ability with some number of Matt Kemp's. And the question is, okay. how, how many Kemp's would you need to equal a Kiermaier? Right. Okay. So I think the answer is two. Then yeah. two Kemp's uh-huh. playing center field equals one Kiermaier. Which, by the way, that's still crazy. Right. Because that's one. That's one person having to be twice the people to be one person, mm-hmm. which is insane. But uh, the you'd cover everything yeah. if you had a four-person outfield. Uh, Buster Olney has actually been writing recently about teams thinking about adopting four-man outfield. He, he just had a, is, an article come out today about four-man outfields. No reference to his colleague Sam Miller's <laughs> best-selling baseball book about using four-man <laughs> outfielders. Disappointing. Yeah, which is interesting because Olney used to be a prolific linker. But yeah. in any case, I don't know how you link to a book. I don't. I also don't know what the validity is of having a four-man outfield at this point. I don't know what you would take away. I guess it would be like the third baseman when you have a left-handed hitter at the plate. I uh, Hot tip, I haven't yet read Olney's article, mm-hmm. but you can't take away like the first baseman with a righty batter, put the first baseman in the outfield because you need a first baseman. I don't know how many circumstances actually call for four-man outfield, but I guess this is something you and Sam have already talked about, mm-hmm. so you can <laughs> take that. But yeah, I think two Matt Kemp's would equal one Kevin Kiermeyer uh, with Miguel Cabrera. God, I guess I guess it's got to be more than two because he's not an outfielder, but he has played the outfield before. But mm-hmm. in that case, uh, I guess three seems like more than enough. Yeah, it depends on whether we can two. have fractional humans here. Right. Well, yeah, so two and a half Miguel Cabrera's is really no better than two, and it's actually more distressing because you'd have the two who'd be in a panic wondering what happened <laughs> to the third. Uh, it would probably take... Oh, God, I'm bad. So uh, four, I don't know how many Jeff Sullivan's because I, I don't think I could even it would take me a while to even be able to get comfortable with a routine fly ball. Yeah. So like you could you could crowd the outfield with like infinite Jeff Sullivan's <laughs> and they would they would still drop a lot of fly balls. Yeah. Even if they didn't have to move at all. Cause right. It's just like a sea of people. Yeah. It'd be like at the home run derby or something when they have all those <laughs> kids out there shagging fly balls and most of them seem to drop anyway. So yeah. yeah. But like if you take what we talked to Rob about with Michael Jordan, you mm-hmm. know, like Michael Jordan went into it and he didn't really have much of the, even the fundamentals at the start of the season. And by the end he was able to be a competent outfielder. So if you gave Jeff Sullivan or Ben Lindbergh, presuming we have similar baseball skills, mm-hmm. If you gave us like a full off season to get comfortable catching routine fly balls, then I would say the answer is probably three, mm-hmm. maybe four, but probably three. Mm-hmm. What do you think? For us, yeah, I don't know. Because like just in terms <laughs> of range, I think certainly three of either of us could cover the ground that Kiermaier can cover. I mean, he's fast, but I don't think the difference is so dramatic in terms of just being able to run the distance that you need to run. It's more getting a good jump and being able to take a good route and catch balls that you're barely even looking at. And there's no way we would ever come close to Kiermaier in that sense. So I don't know. I I guess three. I guess I think three maybe. Although, <laughs> yeah, like it when it comes to the actual catching of it, you'd have to have so many that every fly ball would be a routine catch basically because like Mm -hmm. you wouldn't have to run that much you wouldn't have to turn around that much because you could have a shallow jeff sullivan and a deep jeff sullivan and you know a shading to the left jeff sullivan and a shading to the right jeff sullivan and then none of them would really have to run that far and the degree of difficulty would be a lot lower so definitely for 
I'm going to say, and, you know, we'd probably never be able to make like a home run robbery or anything. Like even if we were standing at the fence (laughs) when the ball was hit, there's just no way we would be able to jump high enough or coordinated enough, although you are very tall, so maybe that would help. But I think uh, I'll say four. How many in a in a full season? Let's let's say you have even just three, three Ben Lindberghs mm-hmm. handling sort of the center field general area, yeah. and you've got these these two league average left and right fielders who are like, what's going on <laughs> in center field? But whatever, that's yeah. happening. We've come to accept it. We had spring training to get used to this. How many collisions would there be between <laughs> the three Ben Lindberghs? <laughs> yeah, probably a lot. We'd probably we'd we'd be on the DL a lot. Probably. Yeah, so you'd need a bench full of more Ben Lindberghs. Yeah, we wouldn't ever be running that fast, and so that would help, I think, because we'd be smaller than Kevin Kiermaier, and we'd be running a lot less fast, so there'd be a a lot less momentum with any given Ben Lindbergh, so maybe the collisions would be less damaging, but uh, I think, yeah, we'd probably still hurt ourselves quite often. You run. Have you ever run into anything? I mean, just jogging? No, yeah. <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> but uh, and I do run like on the streets of New York, where there are a lot of potential obstacles and ways I could die, and I haven't yet. So I guess that's that's good. I have had some practice, sort of threading in and out of crowds and pedestrians. So maybe that would serve me well here. I have run into a no parking sign <laughs> while just jogging. <laughs> so I would I would think maybe I would have more collisions than. Three Jeff Selvins might collide more than three Ben Lindberghs. Yeah. When I go running, I still think of, what was it, a tweet you sent about how you're afraid of things falling on you? like uh, Oh, the fire escapes. Yeah, fire escapes, right. I still think of that yeah. whenever I pass one. It's horrifying. <laughs> oh, you know what? Oh, disadvantage. Yeah. You, ben, three Ben Lindberghs might have trouble communicating with one another because you have a quiet voice. That's true. You would have to be comfortable participating yeah. and being allowed Ooh. to call off another Ben Lindbergh. Yeah. My voice doesn't carry well in crowds. Like I have trouble being heard in bars and that sort of thing. So that would probably be also the case in outfields with fans. So although if we're in Tropicana Field, it's probably not that loud. So <laughs> But you know that thing fans do when the ball's dropping they get loud to try to like yeah. distract the outfield? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. All right, and last one from Peter in the Seinfeld episode, The Caddy, season 7, episode 12, aired January of 1996. George is excited at the prospect of becoming the assistant GM of the Yankees. In one bit of unbridled enthusiasm, he tells Susan, I think I got it. How about this? How about this? We trade Jim Larritz and Bernie Williams for Barry Bonds, huh? What do you think? That way you have Griffey and Bonds in the same outfield. Now you got a team. And Peter wants to know, do you think the Giants take this deal for Bonds? Yeah, first of all, I don't know how they got Ken Griffey Jr. in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in this circumstance, I don't recall the episode off the top of my head. Maybe you do? Do I you? I don't remember that, no. Okay. So let's just let's just accept that the Yankees have acquired <laughs> prime Ken Griffey Jr. somehow. Yeah. That's fine. And they did that without uh, losing Jim Layritz or Bernie Williams. So looking at the trade, the I think one thing that's difficult about this is trying to put ourselves in the mindset of a baseball executive twenty years ago, because mm-hmm. I don't really remember how they operated. If they operated like they did today, then the Reds don't trade Mike Cameron for Ken Griffey Jr. because that was a disaster for them. Mm-hmm. So the best I can do is to try to think, well, just generally, Jim Layritz was sort of a catcher, but he wasn't really valuable. I think even at the time, people knew, hey, this guy can't defend. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not even that good of a hitter. So Layritz also was already into his 30s by this point. Maybe he was 30 or 31. So I don't think Layritz is worth, worth much of anything aside from his presumed PED connections. But every team 
had PED connections, including every team with Barry Bonds on it. Mm -hmm. So really the core of the trade is Bernie Williams, a younger Bernie Williams for a slightly older Barry Bonds. Bonds had three years left on his free agent deal with the Giants over which he was being paid something like $25 million or thereabouts, which is crazy <laughs> to say now. Yeah. Uh, Bernie Williams, I believe, is entering his three years of arbitration over which he earned something like 14, I think, million dollars roughly. Maybe more important than that, over the three previous years going into this time of the hypothetical trade, Bernie Williams had been worth 12 war, which is quite good, mm -hmm. except not so good when compared to Barry Bonds' 24. So. Yeah. To whatever extent teams would be aware of how much better Bonds was than Bernie Williams, who was not much of a defensive player uh, and clearly not a hitter on Bonds' level, this would be a terrible trade for the Giants to make. The savings would not be worth the downgrade in the field. I don't know what the Yankees would have had to throw in, but this is going into 1996. So interestingly, would they have traded Mariano Rivera because he was mm. not yet an established anything? Right. Yeah. And he was often mentioned in trade rumors at the time, nearly was traded. I don't know whether this changes the way that Bonds' future plays out. Maybe with the attention of playing in New York, he doesn't feel like he has to take steroids. He's in an outfield with Griffey somehow, who was you know, the other <laughs> player who was known for being great and clean. And maybe that would be an influence on Bonds. So who knows? Maybe he turns out to be a worse, less valuable player if he gets traded at this point. But... Yeah, still pretty lopsided because he was amazing even before. Which way does the influence go on a team that has Griffey mm. Bonds and Derek Jeter? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Like, does Bonds corrupt them all because they realize how much better they can be? <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> all right, so we will end there. By the way, we answered a question maybe last week, not too long ago, about the World Baseball Classic and whether we thought it increased injuries. I wrote an article about that at The Ringer, looked into it, crunched the numbers, so you can find a more definitive answer there. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Got several new supporters. I'm going to read six today instead of my usual five. So thanks to Ryan Quans, Noam Neusner, Casey Zachary, Hugh Hansen, Bing Zhu, and Ryan Patterson. Thanks to all of you. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Keep your questions coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or by messaging us through Patreon. We'll be back tomorrow. So we'll talk to you then. So here is a quick rundown. We